Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist's Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. We've got Malabama here. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman. What it is. Oh, Jordan O'Moore is here. Professor Sean. Danny Unknown collecting those TikToks for us. I don't know what he does with them, but... They're over there somewhere. <laughs> Why do you have to make it sound so incriminating? <laughs> I don't know what he'd be doing with those TikToks. Like, what could he do? <laughs> he has a bag of TikToks that he's posting at TikTok.com slash The Minimalist or whatever we are on TikTok. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about today, y'all. I think we should start with our callers. If you have a question or a comment for our podcast, you can give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. By the way, let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message when you call. Our first question today is from Jenna. My name is Jenna and I'm a Patreon subscriber from Davenport, Iowa. My husband and I moved to the house we live in about 10 years ago, and multiple boxes and plastic storage bins have lived in a closet under our stairs untouched since we moved in. Last weekend, I eliminated about five large boxes worth of items. Unfortunately, there are two large plastic bins that remain of my own personal sentimental items. These items are from my childhood. Many pictures personalized graffitied yearbooks, even my personalized sweatshirt and coat from fifth grade. And yes, it still fits. Many of the pictures and memories from school during these younger years involve people who meant the world to me then, but we've since grown distant or have maybe had a falling out. So they mean nothing to me now. I would say I love most of the memories these items trigger, but have no connection to these things. I consider some items to be untouchables. These are things having to do with my sister who died in 2008. I don't want to let go of these things because they bring me comfort when I see the things or think of the items. I don't foresee ever letting go of those things. And that brings me back to the fact that I still have many things living in boxes that aren't bringing value to my everyday life. The items I can't bring myself to release feel like a heavy weight and I want to know how to either be okay letting go or to be okay to continue to store these bins in the closet. Jenna, I definitely identify with your question here. When I first stumbled into minimalism, it was before I even stumbled into minimalism. Ryan can recall because he helped me through this. I was dealing with my mom's stuff and a lot of boxes of sentimental stuff. And of course, at some period of time, everything starts to become sentimental because we assign some sort of value or meaning to it, or especially what happens. She used this word that I used as well, untouchable. Mm-hmm. I won't even question as to whether or not I can let go of this, which is another way of saying I can't let go of this. I know I am unable to let go, and I've been paralyzed by that feeling as well. You look around and there are so many boxes of stuff. And 
you're so paralyzed, you can't let go of any of it. You don't know where to start, right? And yet you've already started. You acknowledged something beautiful. There were five boxes that you let go of. Yeah. Beautiful. And now you've got two more boxes, two bins, where you're wondering, should I get rid of these? Or actually what sounds like you're wondering is, I'm supposed to get rid of these in order to feel happiness. Well, as you know from last week's episode with Kapil Gupta, we're certainly not going to prescribe that you should get rid of these bins because I don't know whether or not that will make you happier. I know that not being attached to them will make you freer, but you don't have to let go of the box in order to let go of the attachment. But I can tell you this, clinging prevents us from moving on. Mm. And you brought up that the memories that those things trigger, and I love that you said that. The things trigger the memories. The photos trigger the memories, but you've already recognized, you've let go of the memories being in the things. That's a giant step in letting go because it's not something you did, it's something you understood. You understood fundamentally that my memories, my sentiment, my relatives that have passed on are not in those things. And so yes, practically there are some things you can do. You may have already done. You can take pictures of the things that are bothering you. If they are indeed bothering you, if they're getting in the way, then they're clutter, right? We're not telling you to get rid of anything on this podcast, but understand that if something's getting in the way of living a meaningful life, if it's getting in the way of your joy, if it's causing some sort of discontent, and obvious it is, that's why you're calling in, then it is some sort of clutter, whether it's physical clutter or mental clutter, it's spiritual clutter, whatever it might be. It's some sort of clutter for you. Of course, you can also do a scanning party. We have that in our Minimalist rule book, which you can download for free at theminimalists.com. One of the things you can do is have a scanning party with any of the photos. So you don't have to get rid of the memory triggers. You can actually hold on to the things that trigger the memories. The irony of that, though, is I very rarely go back and visit the things. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Ryan, we did a year-end wrap-up when Danny wasn't here. We have a photo tour every week. We go into someone's home. In fact, today we're going into Ryan's home on the private podcast. And we're going to take a look at his home. We left our homes and we went back in time to 2011, our very first tour, a year into the minimalists before we even knew TK, before we knew Alabama, before we knew Jordan, before we knew Danny or Emma or Social Jess or we knew Podcast Sean, but he wasn't Mm -hmm. Podcast Sean then. Mm. And even when we met Professor Sean on that tour, and we had some photos from that tour, I went back. It's the first time we've gone look at those things in 10 years, Ryan. Yeah. And it's okay to go back and have access to them, but I don't need to fill my house with those photos. They can be on a hard drive or in a cloud somewhere. And if I feel compelled to go back and look, great, I will. But I'm not going to burden myself by needing to always go back and look at them. I have access to them, which gives me the peace of mind. And that peace of mind, it helps me let go. That's a pretty big deal too, especially because these are just things you want to look at and they're not things that you need to use. And one of the things I heard is they mean nothing to me. I also heard it feels heavy. 
And the value is that they trigger these memories. And if that's the primary value, you said they trigger these memories that are important to you when you see them or when you look at them, then maybe there's a possibility for you to capture them digitally so that you can see them and look at them whenever you want, but without having to carry around that heavy weight. Because it seems that the value they provide is primarily what you've identified, the memories that they invoke. So if you can capture that, that capacity to invoke those memories, you're, you're good to go. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, Jenna. Um, well, it's always hard to say goodbye to our things. Um, I guess the more you let go, the the kind of the easier it gets. But I mean, even now, like, you know, when Mariah and I do the, the minimalist game or whatever, like it's, there's a little bit of, um, a little bit of resistance I have to get through. And it's even harder in Jenna's situation where, I mean, some of these things were her sisters and letting go of her sister's things. Um, it, I could see where she would feel almost like um, she is uh, disrespecting her sister in a way. Like that's something that I know I would probably struggle with if I was Jenna. So I think it's just, you know, it's important to understand like what are these things truly doing for you? Because the act of holding on to your sister's things doesn't make you love your sister anymore or less or miss her anymore or less. But um, it sounds like the story that you're kind of telling yourself is is making it uh, one way or the other. Man, um, she's looking for permission to let go or to hold on. Jen, I give you permission to do either, you know? Yeah, or do both. Yeah. Because here's what I found when I started letting go of my mom's stuff. I got more value from the few items that I held on to. Mm-hmm. Now, I held on to those things loosely and nothing was untouchable. Even now, I have one remaining thing of my mom's stuff. It's this hat box, which doesn't even really match my aesthetic and my home. And it takes up one shelf. And for me, that is my untouchable thing. But I'm willing to touch it. I'm willing to let it go. Because if I'm not willing to do that, then I'm clinging. And I'm not able to move on Mm. if I am indeed clinging. You mentioned resistance, Ryan. And I wanted to touch on that because I think that's such an important point. Whenever I feel resistance, it's generally the path that I want to take. Hmm. I got into the ice bath this morning around 4.30, 5 a.m. It was early and the stars were out. It was cold. And I do this every morning. In fact, I often get in the ice bath two times or three times yesterday. And every time there is some bit of resistance. Sometimes it's a twinge. Like I barely feel the resistance. Other times it's like, oh, how am I? possibly going to get into a tub full of ice water. Mm. And yet, as soon as I feel the resistance, I know that is the direction in which I want to travel because that's where the freedom is. It's letting go of the resistance. Someone might call it pushing through the resistance, like Stephen Pressfield. But ultimately, it's seeing that resistance for what it is. Mm. It's seeing a weakness in myself that I'm able to overcome. And as soon as I witness that resistance... I'm able to go right through it. I'm always glad that I moved through that resistance. Man, you brought up the photos we pulled up, kind of going back 10 years, 12 years, whatever it was. Um, That was awesome. Like, that was really cool. Like, to go back and um, have all of those, those, those pictures kind of trigger this, these memories of, you know, when things were way more simple. I don't, I think I said this on the podcast, uh, it wasn't easy. (laughs) 
but it was definitely more simple back then. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I love taking down a, a, a trip down memory lane. Um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with, uh, wanting to trigger those memories. I just, I feel like we just often put these rules in place that say, well, I can't go down memory lane unless I blank. And, uh, Jenna, you might be able to rework whatever that boundary is that you're setting up for yourself. But, you know, I think Josh said it earlier, like these things are weighing you down. I mean, if they're, if they're weighing you down, then there is probably something that you might benefit from, uh, from, from letting go of, of some of these things that are weighing you down. But I just want to reiterate, you have our permission to do whatever you want to do. Like, we're not here to tell you what to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, also letting go for you doesn't have to mean letting go for someone else, letting go for someone else. And so there might be ways of letting go that don't require you throwing them out. And it's sometimes easier to let go when we know that there's someone else that can find value out of it. Mm. So maybe consider that as a possibility. I don't know all the details of your situation, but if there's someone else in the family for whom those things would not be clutter, who might find value in them, then that could be a a viable alternative path. Jenna, I'm going to send you a copy of our book, Everything That Remains. Ryan and I wrote this toward the beginning of our journey back in 2012 is when we wrote the first draft. So right around the time of that first tour, at the end of that first tour is when we started it. And I think you'll find immense value in this because it was a process of, well, it was really a book about how we ceased the clinging, not how we let go, but all the things we stopped clinging to in order to move forward. You got this, Jenna. We'll send you a copy of the uh, audiobook version. If you like our podcast, I think you'll like that. Or if you want the ebook or the book book version, we'd be happy to send those to you as well. Our next question is from James. My name's James and I'm an English teacher from the UK. Over the last week or so, I've torn down all of my classroom posters, displays, wall art, and recycled them and put them into the bin. And my all of my students, which are, who are teenagers, have been walking into my room saying, it looks so boring. It's really depressing now. Just the walls are gray and there's no spark or there's no personality in here. And I've tried to explain the idea of minimalism and visual clutter and distractions, but they just think it's quite boring. And I was wondering if you had any tips or advice on what I can say to them. Well, of course, our judgment is a mirror of our own preferences. And so, yeah, maybe it is boring to them. And you're always going to be boring to somebody. And that's okay. I don't mind if you're bored by me. I'm not going to drag you into my boredom. I'm not going to ask you to also be bored with me. And yet, if I did everything that I want to do in order to appease someone else, to pacify their boredom, to make sure they aren't bored... Ryan, it seems to me that as an extrovert, I know this is something with you, you are an entertainer of people, even when you're not on a stage somewhere, (laughs) you become the life of the party. And part of that is you you aren't boring. And I know that I generally am. If I'm at a party, I'm really boring. I'm the guy over in the corner sort of observing what's going on. And I'm not, I'm I'm going out of my way to avoid talking uh, with people. You're, You're the opposite of that because, but it's not because, oh, I'm afraid of being boring. It's because you're compelled to... To interact. Sure. Yeah. I, I, first off, I don't think you're boring at parties, Josh. Um, 
You're boring all the time, not just parties. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, man. Dang. No, I've never thought about that. Uh, thought thought that about you at a party. Um, for me, uh, yeah, I mean, just I just I like, um, I like laughing and I like making other people laugh, um, and that's just kind of ingrained in me. But with James here, um, man, uh, if someone if someone came to me and said, "Oh, you, you know, this room in your house looks empty." And if I said to them, well, it's because I'm a minimalist, that doesn't really open up a conversation. So, mm-hmm. so James, you know, I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't say to people, but if someone comes to you and says, oh, this is really um, boring, then what you can do is sh- explain to them why for you it's not boring. Like, oh, like, wow, like I see what you're saying. Like there's, I took down some of the stuff, but... Um, look at all this like open space. Like it's a blank canvas for us to do whatever we want. But to to just respond with like, well, I'm a minimalist, and, a minim- and minimalism is about having fewer things. Um, y- yes, like people aren't going to be as compelled to mm. learn more about you know why you took all that stuff down. But you know, ultimately, James, you don't have to explain yourself to anybody. That's and, right, and, and you can show them that. And I think this is what you're doing here. You're showing some of them at least that minimalism exposes the beauty within the bones, right? Mm -hmm. So stripping away that which is superfluous, if you had superfluous posters, and it's superfluous to you because it's highly individual here, but if it was superfluous to you and you're letting those go, someone else, not everyone else, be clear, not everyone's going to find value in that, but someone else is going to say, oh, wow, this is calmer. It's like when I first started simplifying, Ryan came to me and he said, why the hell are you so happy? There were other people who were like, oh, no, you're getting rid of your stuff. You must be suicidal. Mm. I want all my stuff. I need more stuff. I need to cling to my stuff. I never have enough. Okay. That's fine. I understand is always what I say now. In fact, when my daughter was, oh, this is really boring. I understand. Because I don't need to explain myself. I don't need to prove myself. No, no, no. I'm not boring. I swear to you. You're boring. Mm. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I think about uh, Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art. He says, the more important some task is to your soul's calling, the more likely you will experience resistance from the world when you move in the direction of that calling. Sometimes we make these changes because it might create more space for health or wealth or wellness in our lives. And then the people around us say, well, I don't like that change. That makes you less funny to me, less interesting to me, less convenient for me. And we have to make a decision in those moments. Can we still love ourselves even when other people hate us for the changes that we make? And sometimes if we can say yes to that, then we find that the people that initially hate us might come around and warm up and say, I'm glad you stuck to it. I'm glad you stayed true to yourself. Or sometimes those people may fade away. And that too can be a good thing because it's not really a loss if the people that are falling away from you are people that were holding you back from being true to yourself. The next thing I'd say is there's a difference between explaining yourself and demanding that other people accept your explanation. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when we love people and we want them to know where we're coming from, we say, hey, look, just so you know that this isn't personal or arbitrary, here is the reason why I'm doing this. And they may listen to that and say, yeah, well, I still don't like it. There's room in those moments to say, I respect your opinion. And I also hope that you can respect my decision. Last thing, if the opinions of your students happen to be important to you and you want them to feel good about the way the room looks, 
there is possibility for compromise in the making of a creative project out of it. You can say to the students, hey, look, I'm not anti-art. I'm not anti-embellishment. I just don't want my classroom filled with clutter. So how about this? We can put up two pictures, only two, but as a class, we're going to decide what two pictures represent the spirit and energy of this group. And then you can get them involved and they can have a say on what the class looks like within the boundaries that you establish for what's aesthetically pleasing to you. That could create a win-win scenario, just a possibility. Yeah, it's always interesting to yeah find a way to involve, you know, any of those who are kind of uh, not seeing the beauty behind minimalism, like to get them involved somehow so they can kind of appreciate the beauty of it. TK, if I went up to you and I was like, hey, man, um, I don't like that shirt. It's ugly. Like, what are you going to say? Like, right. Yeah. It'd be pretty much the same as you saying, TK, man, that shirt's amazing. What am I going to say? Exactly. What do you mean by amazing? Right. Give me an argument. There's nothing to say other than, hey, man, thanks. Yeah. What's the opposite of that? Hey, man, thanks. Thanks, right. Okay, appreciate it. Thanks for the feedback. Thanks for the unsolicited feedback. Appreciate your honesty. Yeah, people love giving unsolicited feedback, don't they? But but no, I mean, if someone came up to me and was like, hey, man, that shirt's ugly, I would just be like, oh, okay, like, um, yeah, okay, thanks. Or if anything, I might say, uh, oh, yeah, I, you know, uh, sorry that you see it that way or not sorry that you see it that way, but I really like this shirt. And just because someone else likes it or doesn't like it isn't going to make me like it or not like it any more or less. And if you can have an attitude of, as you say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I understand attitude because it's just, yes, you think this shirt is ugly, as you say. And if that has a bearing on me, well, what does that say about me? Mm-hmm. That I need to change your worldview in order for me to be happy. Oops, I've created a prison for myself every time that I do that. Yeah. By the way, you can be playful with this kind of stuff too. And children bring this out of us because that's how children talk. They will say that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can be like, okay, if you were me, what kind of shirt would you wear? Yeah. Oh, I wear something much cooler. Like what? <laughs> I wear something that was, you know, more colorful. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, only you could get away with that. I don't look that good, man. Only you could get away with that. Ha <laughs> You know, but it diffuses things when you don't take people so seriously and you don't take yourself so seriously that you feel like you need to defend yourself against every casual remark that doesn't say, I love everything about how you look. Oh, that's, yeah, that's it, man. Like with Josh and I, I mean, we take ourselves seriously enough but we clearly see the irony in everything that we do as the minimalists. Yeah. And I think once people see that you're not taking yourself that seriously, you're putting yourself on a pedestal, um, they're more apt to like not criticize as much. But I think like a lot of the criticism we get is people who see the minimalists, they'll see like a post and then they, you know, project their judgment on this one thing. Cause they look at us like, Oh, these guys are putting themselves on a pedestal. But once they get to know us, like they understand that like we don't really take ourselves that seriously. Got another question here from Rob. This is Rob from Auckland, New Zealand. There are so many companies these days that target adult toy collectors through nostalgia. Toys were a huge part of my childhood and I never grew out of it as an adult. Since becoming a minimalist and following you guys, I have given away so many boxes of toys. I wanted to make a huge change and I did. But I still find myself looking up favorite characters from film and television and wondering if they would look good on my bookshelf. I know the answer is no, but it's hard. What are your thoughts on the world of adult toy collecting? I think that wisdom is found 
in the child, not in their toys. There's a childlike wisdom that we see in children, especially prepubescent children, where they they walk through the world, they see the world, they actually see the world. Mm-hmm. They see what's going on around them. A few weeks ago, I took Ella to school. And when we got there, she was noticing everything. The way the tree would, look how the tree is swaying. Mm. Look, it's a vulture. Do you think something died? (laughs) And then over and over, she's noticing the world. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because of some accoutrement she had or some sort of toy. That said, toys can be a wonderful possession for children because what? They enhance their lives in some way. Mm -hmm. They amplify play. They magnify play for children, right? And as adults, we all have our own version of toys Except most of those toys that we buy for our kids get in the way. Ryan, you had this great stat. We were on the Love People Use Things tour last year. You can find those tour stops over on uh, our Patreon page for any of our true fans on Patreon. uh, The thousand true fans. I think there's still like maybe a dozen slots left in that tier. Mm. We were on tour and we did these 20 different events and... One of the stats you had was about the number of toys oh, the kids have. Yeah, put me on the spot. I think it was like, I want to say 200 or 300 toys or something. It was almost 300. Yeah, but they play with uh, like less than 12 of them. Each day. Uh, yeah, it is uh, it is pretty staggering. It's Yeah. So the average kid in the mm. Western world, TK, has about 300 toys Ooh. and plays with about a dozen of them each day, which shows us that 90 plus percent of the things either aren't as interesting to them or, and I've noticed this with Ella myself, they actually get in the way of her life, of Mm. living the life she wants to live, of being in the moment of experiencing life. The stuff can get in the way or the stuff can clear the way if we have the things that add value to our lives. And of course, that is always changing. And The one thing that really stood out to me, TK, about Rob's question is he said, oh, I see these new toys and I feel like they might look good on my shelf. And then it's not, I know it's not true. No, they might look good on your shelf, but just because something would look good on your shelf, that is not a compelling enough reason for me to Mm. spend the money, the time, Mm. the energy, the attention Mm. to bring it home, to take care of the thing to water the thing, (laughs) to clean off the thing, to pay for insurance for the thing. Mm. And all of a sudden, I've got all of this ex... I've got all of this external... I've got all this external clutter that is creating internal clutter for me. Mm -hmm. And that's where... That's where Rob is right now. He has some internal clutter that he's looking at because he started to deal with this external clutter. He said, you got rid of all these toys that were getting in the way for you. They were clutter for you. But now you're looking inside and saying, oh, wait a minute. My identity is also wrapped up in these toys. And so I need to start letting go, not just of the stuff, but of the identity that I associated with the stuff. Yeah, that's really good. One game I like to play is called How Does That Thought Feel? And what that game allows me to do is focus my attention beyond the mere content of the thought and get a sense of the energy behind it and how it affects my life. And I try to go about this in a way that doesn't compromise the truthfulness of the thought. So for instance, if the thought is, I don't have any money. Okay, how does that feel? Just like sit with that, sense where that's at in my body. It's like, okay, that's a 
pretty low vibrational thought. I don't have any money. Okay, without compromising the truthfulness of that, can I reframe that thought so that it might feel a little bit different? Um, I need money. Uh, that feels about the same. Um, this weekend, I'm going to set aside some time to think of some ways that I can make more money. Oh, that mm. feels a little bit better. And that's just as truthful as the I don't have money thought because why would I spend some time thinking about making more money unless I needed some? Why would I need some unless I don't ha already have what I need? But that feels a little bit better, right? And I think there's a lot we can learn about ourselves by asking how does that thought feel? So when you think about those toys and you say, how would that look on my shelf? Well, that might kind of make you feel bad because you know it might look good and you can't have something that might look good. But then you can ask yourself, but how would it feel to have all that clutter back in my house? I already know the answer to that question because I used to have all this clutter and I got rid of it because it felt a particular way. How would it feel to have it back? And that'll give you more truth than, than just asking, will it look good or should I buy it or should I not buy it? If it feels heavy, sit with that thought for a little bit. You know the answer you need. If it feels light, there might be space for something new. Yeah. Yeah. And I would ask, I would ask yourself too, like, are you feeling deprived? Cause like minimalism is not deprivation. And if you're feeling like you're depriving yourself of something, then, um, yeah, you might want to relook at, you know, the boundaries that you've set up, uh, makes me think about Derek Sivers and he talked about his kid and how, you know, Derek was a minimalist. His kid didn't have hardly any toys and he realized like, oh, wow, I'm like depriving my kid of like having fun with different things and mm. he goes to craigslist and he finds a like a literally like bin of like just random toys that he got his son and he was just going on and on about how much his child just loved playing with these toys and how like it sparked imagination and he's making them different scenarios and um yeah it, it was uh it was something that he was depriving his child of that he recognize and then kind of change the way uh, that he approached toys and his kid. But yeah. that bin, that was his boundary. Like that was, there was nothing beyond that. It was one bin of toys. That's what his kid had. So um, yeah, if you're depriving yourself, then yeah, relook at those boundaries. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, you have our permission to get your adult toys if you want. You came also, out wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's the TikTok. <laughs> Tweet that. You also Podcast have Sean, <laughs> professor. You would also <clears throat> be depriving your child if you bought them ten boxes of toys. Yeah, and those things got in the way. So having no toys for your child is deprivation. Mm -hmm. Giving them too much stuff is deprivation mm. because you're depriving them of experiences of living right now. And isn't that true for us as adults? Having too few things is deprivation. Mm -hmm. Just like when I was obese, morbidly obese, I was also malnourished. Mal meaning poorly nourished. I mm. didn't have the nutrients my body needed. I had a lot of excess, but I didn't have what I needed to thrive. My food intake got in the way. I was also materially obese. I had a lot of material possessions, but I was depriving myself of living a meaningful life. Yeah. Let's move on to some social media questions. Looks like Megan from Facebook has something for us, Malabama. I just bought a farmhouse and the barn is a hoarder's paradise filled with antiques from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. 
But the reason I bought the house was for a simple life. Any tips on how to go through this time capsule and prepare to let go of some potentially cool things I may find? Ooh, I'd say don't go through like don't go if, if it's trash that someone left there, don't don't go through it. Because yeah. she's like, well, I'm going to go through it. And if I find stuff, I might want to hold on to it. Well, then avoid going through all that stuff. What, what I would do is I'd do like an auction. I would just have someone like come out, evaluate it and be like, hey, we're going to have an auction and like get rid of, you know, get rid of this stuff. We're going to sell it. Chances are um, that person who comes out to kind of assess the hoard, mm-hmm. they're probably not going to see a whole lot of value in it. So, um, yeah, most most of it sounds like it's probably trash anyway. You know what I thought of when I thought of when I heard this question? Hmm. Coolio. We've been spending most of our lives living <laughs> in a hoarder's paradise. <laughs> oh man. Shout out to Coolio. Oh, R.I.P. to Coolio. So I will say this because she did say the potentially cool things I may find. And I'll just say this: some things are cool, but it's even cooler to let go. And you have been handed this hoard. This hoarder's paradise. Mm -hmm. You've been handed this excess. And now it is your burden. And you picked it up because you wanted this farmhouse to live the simpler life. Mm. But you've recognized that, uh uh-oh, along with this came some baggage, some literal baggage. Someone else's burden is now my burden. And there might be some cool things within that, but... The simple life that you're looking for is actually what you're looking for. And these things will not help you live a simpler life. In fact, they will more likely, more than likely do the opposite. They will get in the way of the life Mm. you want to live. Yeah. I'm attached to the possibility that I'll discover something so amazing that I'll feel attached to it. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I have a hard time letting it go already. (laughs) Man, that's how it is, though. That's how it is sometimes, you know. One thing that might help here is to consider the fact that what is a burden to you might be a blessing to someone else. What is merely tolerable to you might be something worthy of celebration to someone else. And everything under your possession that you look at is like, ah, I could use it. Maybe I'll find a place for it. There's someone else that would feel ecstatic about having that. And so I really like Ryan's advice here of, hey, just offer it all up and see who comes looking for it and see who feels excited about it, right? Mm. Because Mm. the person that celebrates it is going to bring more meaning to your experience than you just being the person that tolerates it. Another thing as well is you can always have or hire somebody else to go through that stuff. Mm. If you feel like you just aren't capable of looking through it without getting attached to things, it's okay to be honest with yourself and have somebody else do it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Man, my uh, growing up, my dad, he loved going to antique stores. And there's two of them specifically. Um, one's in Waynesville, Ohio. The other one's in Morrow, Ohio. We went several times. Like there's a, it's a hoarder's paradise in these antique barns. And they have some cool stuff. And I got to tell you, like going there with my dad, like, hey, you know, we were like kind of bonding, but um, watching him like have some, you know, memories uh, get triggered from some of these different things and him talking about things. It was really awesome. Um, but I would hate to be the one who has to hold on to all that stuff. So it's it's almost like, it's like a museum. I love going to museums, but I don't want my house to be a museum. Mm-hmm. You know? That's beautiful. Another question from YouTube here. Mel has a question for us. Since my mother discovered Amazon and Facebook ads, she has been filling our house to the brim with stuff. 
When I try to talk to her about it, she says it doesn't bother her and tells me I'm mentally weak to let things bother me. I plan on going to grad school soon. And while I don't want to take on student loan debt, I'd feel miserable if I continued to live at home. How can I keep the peace until I move out? Well, Mm. understanding that peace is not acquired, it is uncovered. And it it sounds to me like her purchases are covering up your peace, but they're not bothering her piece at all. And so you said, I've tried to talk to her about it, but maybe you don't need to talk to her about it if she is not experiencing the same sort of misery that you are. This doesn't sound like a her problem. Mm. And I know this isn't what you want to hear because you were writing into the minimalists and the minimalist should have some sort of prescription to help me tell my mother that she should let go of the excess stuff in her life. And I have identified what is excess for her. But of course, you can't identify what is excess for someone else because what is enough for me might be too much for you. What is too much for you might not be enough for me. And so clutter is highly individual. And these things they might actually add value to her life. And she feels judged. And that's, so she's coming back with a judgment for you. And I'm sorry to hear that she's telling you that you're mentally weak. That's not the case here. It's that you have different preferences. You have a different idea of what adds value to your life. You have a different understanding of what gets in the way. And right now, while you're living under the same roof, it seems like some of her things get in the way. Now, practically, what can you do? You can have your own space in which those things don't enter your space. That's a boundary that you set up for yourself. And then within the boundaries there, you can have your own rules. You download the Minimalist Rulebook. It's 16 Rules for Living with Less. It's free. They're not actually rules, though. We don't prescribe rules. I do that because everyone's looking for rules. So we called them rules. But they're really just tools. They're boundaries you set up within your own bounds. But these aren't rules to use to batter someone else Mm. with your own preferences. That's right. Uh, (laughs) You are mentally weak for being bothered by things. That sounds like the kind of thing that someone would say as a defensive reaction to someone trying to change their relationship Mm. to things. Hey, your things bother me. You need to get rid of them. Oh, well, you're mentally weak for even being bothered by things. And I think the first step to get out of that kind of scenario is to cease any efforts to get that other person to change their relationship to things for your sake. Let them be who they are. A minimalist isn't someone who is unbothered by things. A a minimalist is someone who is unencumbered by things. A minimalist is someone who is free to explore the possibilities of life because they don't have things weighing them down. It was Alan Watts who said um, that the infinite is not standoffish. It's big enough to include the finite. I would say also that the minimalist is not standoffish, but the minimalist is flexible enough to have room in his or her life for people that love things, right? (laughs) There's nothing standoffish about minimalism. And so I would say you can keep the peace by allowing her to be whoever and however she needs to be and not trying to change her. And then you can say, all right, this is an opportunity for me to practice the real beauty and power of my lifestyle, which is only revealed when you're in a context where 
everybody doesn't have to agree with you or be like you. And you don't, it sounds like you don't have long to wait. Sounds like grad school's around the corner. Mm. I say when my dad would say, it's my house, it's my rules. Yeah. Drove me crazy, but he was right. Like it's his house, it's his rules. So, you know, um, I wish I would have taken this approach with my dad uh, rather than just being a rebellious little jerk face. But uh, I wish I could have went to my dad and been like, you know what, you're right. Um, these are your rules. Um, he, here's what here's what I, I feel like I, I need. And this is this is what would help me. Um, I don't know, help me get along with you better or help me uh, live, a, live a live a better life in this house or whatever it is. I wouldn't lay down for him like this is what you got to do for me. It would be more like here's what I desire. Is there any way for us to meet in the middle? And, uh, you know, you could do this with your mom in the sense of kind of what Josh said, like you probably have your own space that where you can set up boundaries. Is she crossing those boundaries? If so, well, then have a conversation with her. And here's the other thing, too, is like if you're judging your mom or anybody, if you're going after them and saying you should or you shouldn't um, or, you know, what you do bothers me like that Mm. is going to create um, it's just going to create an argument and it's, it's a way to escalate the situation. And then they're going to look at you and then they're going to give you an insult back because they feel like, uh, you know, you've insulted them. So rather than finding a way to tell them what they're doing wrong, try to find a way to tell them what they're doing right. Like, see how you can go out of your way to Mm. just support their preferences. I mean, I'm sure there's something, you know, there's some good intention somewhere with your mother. So that's what I would focus on is how can you support her with the good intentions? Start there. And then maybe work into something that um, creates a little bit more, uh, I don't know, a little, a little, or a little less uh, stress in your life. And let's say that she yeah. is actually struggling, and you've noticed that in her, that struggle. Yeah. Trying to convince her is not going to change that struggle. You can simply show her mm. how you have let go, the path that you've used to move forward. I did this recently with Ella. We sort of have the inverse situation of this. We give Ella her boundaries in her bedroom. Mm. And her bedroom is way more chaotic than any other room in our house Mm -hmm. because she has the boundaries. Now, she has boundaries within that. Like, I wouldn't let her, like, poop on the floor and just keep it there, right? (laughs) And I ask her to clean up there as well. But I also accept, and that's what we're talking about here today, Mm -hmm. the acceptance that someone else has a different desire, a different preference, Mm. a different understanding. They aren't where I am in life. And therefore, for me to try to impose my own worldview, to try to convince them, to drag them to my point of view, not only is that going to make them suffer, but it's going to make me suffer as well. I have one tweetable thing to say. In, In order for your mother to respect your battle, you have to respect your mother's battles first. Deborah from Facebook has a question for us. I have been able to let go of a lot of sentimental items by photographing them instead of holding on, but I know not everyone can be satisfied with just the photo. Can you discuss different ways to preserve sentimental items that we do want to keep around? Well, the best way to dissatisfy yourself is to satisfy everybody else. Mm. (laughs) Because eventually you're going to start doing things that compromise your values, compromise your desire. To take your time, your attention, your money, your health, your well-being, you compromise all of those things in order to satisfy everybody else. And so 
So what? If it doesn't satisfy someone else that you took photos of your things, Mm. you didn't take photos of your things for you. You took photos of your things to preserve those triggers of the memories that are inside you because our memories are not in our things. Our memories are inside us. And when we take a photo of something, it preserves that trigger for the memory that's already there. But if you're trying to satisfy everyone through your actions, you'll end up dissatisfying yourself. You're going to make yourself miserable. Mm. Yeah. Hey, man, I, I, I think that's it. I mean, it, it really is less about what prescription is going to allow me to do this. And it's more about why am I even being driven to do this in the first place? You don't need what's useful to you to be useful to everyone else in order to have a good reason for holding on to it or applying it in your life. And so I, I don't think that's a question you need to know for other people. Um, w- one thing I, w- I would say, though, is that if you've got sentimental items and you really want to preserve it and it hurts you more to let it go, there's no rule that says you got to let it go. If you really want to keep something and it brings you greater joy to keep it, then keep it. And, and, and if that's what's being true to yourself, then that's the thing to do. Oh, yeah. I think it's also worth pointing out with what TK is saying to address the second part of the question here, which can you discuss different ways to preserve the sentimental items? Well, what items do you want to preserve? Because a sentimental item that gets in the way, like what's going on right now, a sentimental item that gets in the way is still clutter. However, if it ceases to get in the way because you're preserving it differently, if all of a sudden you're displaying it instead of hoarding it in your attic or your closet or your basement, but you're displaying it in a way that brings joy to you or your family, oh, it's not clutter anymore. You can actually turn that sentimental item that was clutter because it was taking up space in your home and space in your mind. You can turn that item into something that adds value if you repurpose it in a way that is valuable to you. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the sentimental things that I have. It's not a whole lot, but it, they're all functional. Like they're, it's either art or, you know, it serves a purpose. Like, you know, I always talk about the stein that my grandma got me. I put change in there. Um, there's a nice vase that like my mom got me. It's, uh, it's beautiful. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an art piece that we have displayed in our home. So yeah, I totally agree uh, with what you're saying there, Josh. Um, finding a way to, uh, yeah, finding a way to use it, whether it's functional or a piece of art, like that is really going to help you enjoy those sentimental items that much more. Yeah. I think sometimes when people think about sentimental items, what, what they're thinking about is the obligatory sentimental item. Here's something that my great grandfather left me I don't want it. I feel terrible for not wanting it. It makes me feel heavy and cluttered and overwhelmed, but I think I'll be a bad person if I let it go. Mm. That kind of sentimental item is very different from saying, here's my high school yearbook. I look at it every couple of months when I have people over and we laugh at it and we have a good time. I don't want to give that up. That's a different type of sentimental. That's useful to you. It provides value in your life. There's no reason to throw that away if it doesn't feel like it's overwhelming you. It's the obligatory sentimental that it can be useful to to question. This is why I love the spontaneous combustion rule. 
I mean, it really gives you a, a very quick litmus test of whether or not something is adding value. And this goes back to even Jenna's question with her sister's stuff. Like anything that you're holding on to that's sentimental, like imagine it spontaneously combusting. How would you feel? Would you feel relief because you finally didn't have to take care of it anymore? Or would you be devastated and you'd have to uh, go out and replace it or, or find something to, to, to bring whatever it is back into your life? Um, that is a, a very easy way to figure out whether or not it's something that um, you really need to hold on to or not. Deborah, you can find that spontaneous combustion mm. rule in the Minimalist Rulebook, 16 Rules for Living with Less. Just download it over at theminimalists.com slash rulebook. Ryan, what time is it? Oh, you know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok because we're cool and got a TikTok account. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. Now, during the lightning round, this is where we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. So you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. Looks like Cash on Desk has a question for us, Malabama. Your 30-30 rule sounds dumb, to be honest. I know it's a mental trick, but can't we just learn to be disciplined? <laughs> give me, oh, give we me say 60 a lot seconds. Of, we say a lot of dumb stuff, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I'll say. Yes, the 30-30 rule is dumb. Every rule is dumb. The reason that we set up these boundaries is because of our own dumbness, our own oversights, our own inability to understand how to maneuver without boundaries. And so, yeah, if you think it's dumb and you already have the discipline to not spend, then you don't need a boundary like this. You're already living within your boundaries, right? Here's something pithy for you, though. The solution is the problem. The problem is the solution. And so this is not a solution for you. This is merely a boundary. It's not going to make you be a better person. It's not going to make you consume less. What it does is it staves off impulse. And if you're burdened by impulse, then this boundary is for you. Mm. Mm. All right, give me 60 seconds. Professor Sean, uh, my pithy answer is this. Uh, discipline is found within the boundaries. So another way to look at this is um, discipline doesn't exist without boundaries. And yet a lot of the rules that we make up are kind of silly or, or maybe it's, uh, uh, I don't know, petty or however you want to look at it. But the rules that you make up is what's going to create that discipline. You cannot have the discipline unless you set up some boundaries for yourself. All right, let me get that 60-second shot clock. Here we go. What's useful for me might be terrible for we. When analyzing, assessing, applying advice, there are two common extremes. The first extreme is to say, hey, here's something that was really helpful in my life. Therefore, it is a universal prescription that applies to everyone else's life. Ever since I started getting up at five o'clock in the morning, my health has improved. My finances have improved. I've made five times as many friends in the past five months as I did in the past five years. And you ought to do it too. I don't know anything about you, but nuance be damned. You ought to do what I do because it worked for me. The other extreme is to say, look, I don't need any accountability partner to motivate myself. <laughs> well, that's a silly idea. Why would you suggest that to anyone? I don't need a coach or a book to help me. I just motivate myself to do it. Why would you suggest that anyone else? Hey, look, 
Some people find things useful even when they are useless to you. So the middle way is to say, what's useful to me might not be useful to we. What's useful to we might not be useful for me. And there's no need to label it Dom or anything else in between. Hmm. He, st- he shot it right through the buzzer. That's I right. think it counted. We're going to have to look at the replay. <laughs> well, you know, I had 30 seconds left over, so. <laughs> oh, you lent it to him. That's right. I will say one thing about discipline. I haven't needed discipline to do the most profound and most compelling things in my life. Yes, there is resistance there, but discipline wasn't required. There was an understanding that if I push through the resistance, then whatever is waiting for me on the other side is much more rewarding to me then avoiding the resistance mm. will be. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists because the world needs another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan and I, we started the side project with our friends Carl and Alberto back in 2016. It's called Minimalism Life. And uh, you can find it at minimalism.com. That's right, minimalism.com. You can also follow it on Twitter, at minimalism, on TikTok, at minimalism. (laughs) We're still trying to get at minimalism for Instagram. We're working on that. But uh, we have at at minimalism life over there as well. But we just started a podcast called Minimalism Life. And it's just once a month, and it's about three minutes. Speaking of minimalism, so if you want to subscribe to it, you can find it wherever podcasts are casted, wherever pods are casted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Spotify, Apple, etc. We just released the first few episodes on Christmas Day as a nice little bonus. So you can find the first, I don't know, four or five episodes out there at this point. They're like three minutes long, a little essay and some commentary on the essay. And, and not too long, I'll ask TK and Ryan and maybe Carl and Professor Sean and a few others to join on this journey. Short little bite-sized insights about minimalist well-being, minimalist travel, minimalist design. You can find that. We'll put a link to the Minimalism Life podcast, which comes out once a month for the beginning of the month. We think you'll enjoy it. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream. Alabama, I know we're not actually live streaming this episode, but you collected a question from a previous live stream. What do you got for us? I did. This is a question from Nina. She asks, how do you guys find time to film your podcasts while in the same location? Don't you all live in different cities? Sort of. So we actually come in here on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. to do the live stream and record a podcast Mm -hmm. and often spend an entire day. Yes, all three of us live in different counties and so technically different cities. Uh, I'm up in Ventura County. Ryan's here in Los Angeles County. TK's down in Orange County. The OG from the OC. (laughs) Yeah, you know me. (laughs) (laughs) And yet we come together once or twice a week. And then we do what the whole world has been doing for a few years now. We work remotely the other times. Mm. And we do the same thing with our team. We don't force someone to work a nine to five. And even if you've completed your task, you must stay here until the bell rings. No, you do what you need to do in order to get the job done. And that's what we do. We come in here once or twice a week, relatively regularly, make a long drive, get up early, but it's totally worth it. I don't feel like I have to do this. I feel like I get to do it. Mm. Yeah, me neither. I I don't feel like I have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I got a gun underneath the desk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ryan's like you got 45 to, seconds oh, I, to minimalism is really about doing what's best for you 
<laughs> Tell them how much you like it or else, TK. <laughs> so what's your drive down here? Like hour, 30 minutes, something like that? It depends. So I, I left this morning around 5.30 and I got here in an hour and a half. Yeah. Oof. And um, sometimes though, if I'll leave at the wrong time, like we were here in the studio on Sunday of all times mm. last week. And I, <laughs> <laughs> the drive home was over three hours because there was a huge thing that was tipped wow. over on the mm. 101. And wow. um, so I just make room for that. And I will use that time still. I would prefer not to have the long drive. However, because I do have it, mm. I just use it. I make phone calls. Yeah. I listen to audiobooks or podcasts or I listen to music. I decompress. Mm. I'll do Wim Hof breathing, but not too much of it because I don't want to pass out <laughs> behind the wheel. No. But I use that time that's been given to me. Because it doesn't feel like a burden. We used to do it all the time. Remember, Ryan used to drive from Piqua, Ohio to Cincinnati. Oh, my goodness, man. man. That's, he, he lived in Piqua. That's like driving, I don't know, from New York City to L.A., basically. Yeah, Ooh. pretty much. No, what, I, uh, I would even go down to, like, um, Florence, Kentucky. So, I mean, it was man. even further. No, I mean, yeah, with the long commutes, there's always, like, something you can kind of do with, yeah, podcasts or audiobooks. So, how long is it? does it take you to get here from... Uh, on, on average, an hour and a half. Is it okay? If I leave early enough, it can be like a solid hour. If I leave late enough, it can be two hours. Yeah, all depends yeah. on traffic. And LA is so funny that way. It's like you might leave, and it says, "Oh, you'll be there in twenty five minutes," and then an accident happens, and then yeah, all of yeah. a sudden it's three hours. <laughs> when I was a dog sitter, I walked an hour and a half there. And then an hour and a half back every day for work. Mm. Uphill both ways. In the <laughs> <snow>. <laughs> naked. Two, two feet of snow naked. Yeah. All right. Before we get to our listener tips today, coming up on the maximal episode, if you're listening to the public episode here, the minimal episode, we have a million more questions from callers, social media, and the live stream, a private minimalist home tour. We're going to walk into Ryan's house and, uh, man. Do I have to talk to you about mm -mm. this house, Ryan? <laughs> I like it. Hey, they don't call me the messy minimalist for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we do a uh, weekly home tour every week where we invite you into our homes and you can scrutinize it with us. We also have our impulse purchases segment. This might be my favorite impulse purchase segment. Yeah. You were watching the video with me beforehand, Ryan. Oh, yeah. This described me, I think, as a teenager, and I think a lot of you will find value in this one. Plus, of course, TK's Tweet of the Week. We've got an outstanding added value segment for you as well, and much, much more of less. And if you want to hear all that, check out The Minimalist's private podcast, patreon.com slash The Minimalist, or click the link in the description. Malabama, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, my name is Hannah and I'm from LA and I wanted to leave a comment for listeners based on your addiction episode. Um, my husband and I have been dealing with addiction issues in our families and relationship for many years and we've finally found an approach that has aligned well with minimalism and all the things we've learned from Josh and Ryan. Uh, so there's a recovery program called Smart Recovery for Addicts and loved ones, as well as a book for loved ones called Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Can Help People Change. Um, both encourage a real methodology steeped in science that allowed us to simplify these really intimidating issues. Um, we wanted to share what we found in hopes that it will help other minimalists simplify the complexity of addiction issues in their lives. 
Hi, my name's Amanda from Rumblestoke, BC, Canada, and these tips are for Jeremy from episode 147 regarding his questions concerning saving for his child's future educational costs with an ex-partner. As a divorce mom myself with an ex-partner who didn't initially see the value in saving for our son's future education, I would recommend the following. Number one, if possible, try to have something added to your separation agreement, which states exactly how much each parent is to contribute annually to an education savings fund for your child. Number two, get creative. Start chatting with your child now about different ways to save money and work while in university to make up for any shortfalls. For example, things like becoming a paid teacher's assistant, resident advisor, campus bookstore rep, etc. You can also start talking to them about finding jobs that will pay for their living expenses, plus a little bit extra, during their university breaks. Things like summer camps, resorts, and cruise ships are all great options. In this way, students can work during all of their breaks, not live at home during their breaks, see the world, and get paid to do it. In fact, I personally was able to work seasonally during my entire six years of university, where I earned four degrees, and pay off $35,000 in student loan debt in just one year of working full-time on cruise ships after I finished my last degree. A great place to start your research is YouTube. For example, you can just YouTube or Google how to work on a cruise ship seasonally, and you'll come across just a ton of info. I want everyone to know there are ways to finish university almost completely debt-free or debt-free totally, get paid to travel and see the world, and build your resume at the same time. I hope this info helps, and thanks guys for everything you do. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Oh, man. We got some stuff to talk about, y'all. Some talkaboutables, mm-hmm. yeah. one might say. I need to start with this. I failed you. <laughs> That's all right, man. I have failed you way more than you failed me. Wait, I want to know how he failed us before I say it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I just think we should leave it at like that and like with no context whatsoever. Just, just you're gonna be like, hey, let, it's okay. And then he'll it, be like, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Just like let all the patrons decide what you failed them on. <laughs> when I say I failed you, I'm talking to myself. I'm looking at the man in the mirror mm. because that's the only person I can really fail. Right? I'm gonna make a change. Starting here with my, my. <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to sing. Bleep that out. <laughs> oh my God, for a second, I thought Michael Jackson was in the room. <laughs> was it a high enough? I'm gonna make a change. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not, Josh. So we did a we did an episode about chronic illness, and we on there I made a commitment to myself to stop consuming coffee, to taper off of it. Mm. I tapered down and I tapered back up. Yeah. (laughs) And here we are. Yeah. I'm still at about, I don't know, two or three cups a day. I don't ever exceed three, but it's usually, it's usually around two. And I find it incredibly difficult to, it's the one vice I have Mm. in my life. And this is the problem with good intentions. I had intentions to taper off because I knew I didn't want to go off cold turkey. I've tried that before and it is a it headache. Yeah. A literal headache, a fetal position sort of headache. Mm. But I am a caffeine addict. I am a coffee addict. And it's the one vice I have. I don't do any sort of other drugs. I don't. I've never smoked or drank alcohol. Like it's just those things aren't appealing to me. And even my diet is so dialed in and pristine. 
I have no problems generally with anything that most people would consider to be discipline. Yeah. But I actually think here that discipline is the problem here. Mm. Meaning that I feel like I should peel back on the coffee because let me be frank with you. Coffee is a toxin. Yeah. It is a seed that is from a cherry fruit that is ground up. The seeds of the plant, they don't want to be digested. If anything, a fruit tricks you to swallow it so you can then plant the seed elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want to be ground up and then heated. Mm. And then the remaining water from that consumed, it is a toxin, right? And I know that some people talk about some of the supposed health benefits of coffee. There aren't really any nutrients in coffee that you... There are no nutrients in coffee at all, really. Mm. So there's no... There's nothing in coffee where it's like, oh, I need this in order to survive. I know I'd be completely fine without it. In fact, I know that my life would probably be better in some ways without it. Mm. But... There are pieces of me that find coffee compelling. I really, really, really enjoy it. And it doesn't seem, and I use this word seem, it doesn't seem to get in the way of my everyday life. But how can I know for sure if I'm not willing to let it go for a period of time? Yeah, I am clinging to coffee. And so I'm looking myself in the mirror right now and saying, Joshua Fields Milburn, I have failed you and I'm sorry. I don't even know where to go from here. I just wanted to talk about it because I don't want to seem like I never want to come off as pious, right? Mm-hmm. But I also want to expose that, you know, even as the minimalists, I struggle with clinging to something, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the failure that? You have come to the conclusion that you should give up coffee, but you you are struggling so badly that you've just decided you're not going to give it up. I've sort of, I, I haven't given it up. Right. And so I don't believe that I should give up coffee. I believe that it is possible mm-hmm. and even probable mm-hmm. that my life would be better without it. Mm-hmm. My health would probably improve somewhat. I might be wrong about that too. It might be that coffee is a net positive for me. But the only way I can truly determine that is if I deprive myself for a period of time Mm. so I have something to compare there. Do you know how long you have to go, you think, to like break it? I don't know. What do you think, Professor Sean? A week, 10 days, a month? I don't know. It took me about two weeks the first time to really feel like I didn't need it. That first week, I felt like I had the flu. Mm. Wow. But, oh, wow. But su- subsequent times I've gone off it have been significant easy, significantly easier. Two days, mm. 48 hours. Uh, I could taper off in three days. Mm. Mm. I, since I was, I've only, since about age 20, when I started drinking coffee, I've only gone three days without coffee ever. I was 29. Oh. It's the only time I ever called off work because I was in the fetal position with such a headache. It's wild. I'm a drug addict. Yeah. Well, I I think we're all addicted to something. I mean, most of us are. Um, I remember in San Francisco, I had posited the question to a uh, the crowd of people. I think it was probably 300 people there, maybe even more. And I'm like, 
who here, like raise your hand if you don't have any addictions in your life and like not one person like raised their hand. So it's almost like we're all addicted to something. Um, let's be careful with the addictions that we bring into our lives. Have you considered like doing green tea or anything like that? Because I know that green it, tea gives me a headache. So really, okay. Yeah. It's it's fascinating because for me, I have no problem going without coffee if I have some kind of tea to fall back on. I mean, a substitute I, of some sort. Yeah. Um. What about uh? Well, what about like black tea or like anything like that? Have you ever tried messing around with that? Because is that because of the caffeine? Because I want to eliminate be- the caffeine as well. It's because of the caffeine, but the difference is is that um. Like green tea specifically actually has some net positive medicinal benefits to it. Um, and, and theoretically, coffee does too. But my my point is the same with tea is yeah. that there are no essential nutrients in tea that I don't already get from my pristine diet. Yeah, I don't need coffee and I don't need tea to live a meaningful life. In fact, what I'm worried about is that I could be living a more optimal life. And when I say more optimal, I mean with less suffering. That, yeah. That's simply it. Mm. And I simply don't know. And now it's creating this mental ang- anguish because it's like, oh, am I so weak that I can't even stop drinking? Like I've stopped everything. I've gotten rid of everything. Yeah. I'm willing to walk away from everything except coffee. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with me? Oh, man. that I just, I totally relate with you, man. I mean, this is like the human condition. We, uh, we, we do things a lot of the time, even though we know it has a detrimental effect or a negative effect, maybe not detrimental, but still a negative effect. It's like we still do these things, even though we know um, it's it's going to hurt us. That brings me to my next talk mm. aboutable, because I was sort of lying to myself about the coffee without even knowing it. My intentions were good and mm-hmm. I thought that I would do it. And then I did do it to a certain extent. I started tapering off and then I plateaued and then I tapered up. And it turns out it wasn't an intentional lie. And that brings to the forefront a lie that was perpetrated recently. And you've probably seen it all over the place is Brian Johnson, the liver king. He told a lie repeatedly. Mm. And haven't we all done that? Mm. And it's funny. So for those of you who don't know who the liver king is, he is essentially a cartoon character <laughs> in real life. Yeah. My daughter is a huge fan because he seems like a cartoon character. He's a huge, overly muscular guy. Yes. And he eats a bunch of raw meat and he does these things that appear to be ancestrally consistent. He's actually doing a lot of things and propagating the message of ancestral living. Get sunlight, um, cold exposure, Open yourself up to real foods, right? Uh, challenge yourself in these ways and uh, get enough sleep, etc. Mm-hmm. And all those things sound wonderful, right? But then you see him and the implication is, for some people at least, oh, if I do all those things, why look like him? Mm. And clearly he's on steroids. There's no question that he... I, I, any person who thought that he wasn't on steroids either knew nothing at all about steroids, like a little child, right? Mm. Or they were willfully ignorant and just ignored the whole thing. It's funny because I never, I never heard him deny taking steroids. 
But it was so obvious to me that like I didn't even bother asking. It was just kind of like, a, oh, this dude's on steroids. Um, well, a lot of people asked him, and that was yeah. the problem. He yeah. lied about it that. repeatedly on different podcasts. Mm. I never touched the stuff. Mm. And then a few weeks ago, these leaked emails came out, and clearly he has been. He was on like twelve thousand dollars a month of steroids. Oh wow! And it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with doing testosterone replacement therapy. I- I've done testosterone replacement therapy in the past. You were getting jacked there for a second, man. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason I did that is I had underlying hormonal issues that I was trying to address. I was not, it it wasn't a vanity thing for me as I felt dead back in Mm. 2019. I needed to adjust my hormones. And that was really helpful for me. In fact, you can go back and listen to the episode we did with Adam Lamb while Ryan was gone. Bex and I came in and we did a whole episode about hormones, specifically women's hormones, because it helped Bex immensely. She did a six-week course of very low-dose testosterone, and it reset the testosterone that she messed up through years of oral hormonal birth control. And I say that to say, the problem is not the fact that he's doing steroids. The problem is that he constantly lied about it. And here's the secondary problem. As soon as he was exposed, what happened? You just saw how sanctimonious everyone was. Mm. Everyone got up on their high horses and talked about how awful this lie was as though they had never told a lie and perpetuated a lie. Because here's what happened with him. He told a lie once on some podcast somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it was like, uh-oh, now I have to tell a lie to cover up the lie. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell another lie to cover up those lies. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this fractal of lies. And this is why lying is so damaging. Of course, there are di- different degrees of severity. And there are times where it makes sense to tell a lie. If, if someone's trying to come after Ryan Nicodemus mm-hmm. and I'm hiding him in my house and they'll, they show up at the door, have you seen Ryan Nicodemus? We're here to kill him. Nope, mm. never seen him. Yeah. Of course I'm going to lie out of self-defense. But that's not what was happening here. This was not self-defense for him. Mm. It was defending a lie. It was lie defense. And it's unfortunate. But what is more unfortunate was the backlash that I saw from people. No one looking at, at this situation from a compassionate perspective. In fact, our friend Max Lugavere, I had lunch with him the day after the scandal broke, right? And he was the same way. He was rather sanctimonious about it at mm. first. And I said, yeah, but don't you think that he's probably suffering a lot right now? And now is maybe the best time to give him love because you can dislike something that someone did, but you can still love them. And it was that same day I actually texted Brian and I said, hey, man, I know you're going through a lot right now. And a lot of people are piling on. And while I dislike what you did, I still love you. Mm. I want you to know that you're loved. And he just responded like, you have no idea how much I needed this right now. Because That's amazing. people were piling on. And he eventually came out a couple of days later with a confession video of he brought everything out into the open and it's been memed endlessly now in hilarious ways. And so I love that. But when he brought it out, he admitted that he screwed up and that he also suffers from insecurity. The insecurity that he works to support other people in their own healing of their insecurity. He's not immune to it because he himself experiences it. Hmm. And so, no, I, I don't like, I, I strongly dislike what he did. 
but I could still love him as a person and see myself in the lies because I certainly have told lies before. And isn't it, the worst thing is, don't we usually lie to the people that we care about the most? And so he lied to the people he cared about the most, the people he was actually trying to support. He lied to them and now they feel betrayed. And you have a right to feel betrayed, but piling on, Hmm. that's not loving. I heard Matthew Kelly talk about the story behind uh, Michelangelo's painting, The Last Supper. I don't know if this is true, but it's, it's, got, it's got a powerful lesson to it. He says that when he first decided to uh, paint that picture, he was looking for an actor to play Jesus, who the picture would be centered around. And so he found a good actor right away, uh, or a good model, painted the picture using that person. And then he started finding all the different disciples and so forth. And finally, he needed someone to be the model for Judas. And he searched and searched, and he just couldn't find anyone with that right look. And so it's he suspended the, the painting for a while. Um, maybe a few years later, um, he's out walking, and he sees a guy who just has that look. And he tells the guy about what he wants to do and asks if the guy will be uh, his model for Judas. And the guy says, sure. And um, as they're, you know, as he's painting him, the model begins to cry. And Michelangelo says, did I, did I do something wrong? Did I, did I offend you? Like, and, and, and he says, do you not recognize me? And he says, no, how would I recognize you? And he says, I was the model that you picked to be Jesus years ago. Mm-hmm. And the moral of the story is that all of us have the capacity to be a Jesus or a Judas, but we tend to only identify with what we think to be the Jesus parts of ourselves. Mm. And we overlook in our quickness to condemn other people, our own capacity to be Judas in our own unique way. And I would say, even if you have a hard time being compassionate towards a guy like that, because I can see a lot of people being like, yeah, I'm not going to give him any compassion. You can still use an opportunity like that as a chance to engage in self-examination. Instead of, instead of doing the easy virtue signal thing, I can say, yeah, that was wrong. But instead of getting the easy love of, you know, um, jumping on the bandwagon of condemning that guy, I can say, hmm, in what way am I susceptible to those same temptations? Come on, TK, you ain't fooling nobody. You like to be loved too. You like to be secure as well. In what way are you capable of lying like that, of fudging the truth like that, of manipulating like that? And sometimes it sounds more virtuous to say, I would never understand how someone could tell a lie. I would never understand how someone could cheat. But that's naivete. That's not a strength to say, I can never understand. The strength is to say, I can understand. I felt similar impulses within myself. I'm fully capable of doing that. And I work very hard to do the right thing because integrity for me is not the inability to do something like that. Integrity for me is having the ability to do it and choosing to live in accordance with my values anyway. That's only possible through self-examination. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, um, there are very few things that I couldn't forgive someone for. And, you know, there are some like really extreme things that come up in my mind right now, but those are, those are the exceptions. It's not the rule. Uh, because like you said, Josh, like I've done some really stupid things and I've told some really stupid lies and I've hit a lot of, a, a lot of stupid things that I'm very embarrassed about. And yeah. I know, uh, I know how much pain I went through when these things surfaced. And, uh, 
yeah, I mean, I think that allows me to show someone like the liver king some compassion because, um, yeah, I mean, beating, beating him up or anyone else up over the past mistakes that they made or the current mistakes that they made, like that's not going to help them at all. And all it does is make one feel superior when they do that. And, uh, you know, we're not, none of us here at this table or in the studio are trying to feel superior. Here's one more talk aboutable for you. And it's related to exactly what we're talking about here. If you want a test for your compassion, mm. Kanye West. Mm. Too soon. <laughs> Yay. Right? Mm-hmm. He recently was on a tear, an anti-Semitic tear, one might say. Mm. And also got to a point where he started praising the Nazis and Hitler. Yeah. And it's easy for us to dismiss that right now and say, how could anyone ever fall for that? If I would have been born in Germany in 1931, 50 years earlier, there's no way I would have been a Nazi. No, you would have been part of the Hitler youth Mm. if you were born in Germany in 1931. That was like being part of the Boy Scouts there. And so we like to get sanctimonious and say, I would never. Okay, maybe the current you would never under all of the circumstances under which you have been raised. But placing you under completely different influences, circumstances, programming, conditioning, you're not going to be you anymore anyway. Mm. And so... I think the same thing is true even with someone like this. I mean, obviously, you can recognize a musical genius and you can even ask questions as to whether or not what he said was hurtful, truly hurtful to someone. We're not talking about R. Kelly, who literally hurt people, Mm -hmm. or Bill Cosby, who literally hurt people, not just physically physically hurt people, right, Um, through sexual assault or rape, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean those words aren't hurtful to someone else that Kanye West was spewing. However, is it possible even to have compassion for someone like that? So, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, No, go for it, man. I think if we were able to have this little experiment where someone like Ye could call up everybody in the world, a private phone call, one-on-one. No one would know that he called you, right? And he called you and he said, uh, hey, what do you think about what I've been saying? I think a lot more people than we would suppose would talk to him in a way that would at least attempt to be educative and compassionate. I think a lot of people would say to him, hey, look, man, I I understand that you're angry and you've been hurt by some things and you're mad at some people, but here's how I would suggest you approach that. And here's why so many people are mad at you right now. But that would be a private conversation. I think what's happening now is so many people are afraid that someone is going to look at them if they respond too compassionately to him and assume that they share the same philosophy. So We live in a world where you have to be very careful and walk on eggshells to say, hey, I love that brother. 
I would love to talk to that brother. I would love to understand him because people will say, what? You love him? You want to talk to him? You want to understand him? You think all the same things as him. Because the way we're playing the game now is anytime anyone does someone foolish, we need for every single individual to deliver an official statement, either endorsing it or renouncing it. And if you don't do either one of those things, we get to assume whatever we want about you. But no, I don't have to endorse what another man says or renounce what another man says because I can't keep up with all of that. There's someone saying something foolish all the time. Now, I don't have a problem with talking about my views, but it's if someone does something crazy or says something controversial, that's on them, right? Like, I don't have an obligation to issue out an official statement on where T.K. Coleman stands every time somebody gets caught up in a scandal, but there's a high incentive to do that now because we live in a world that says, if you aren't condemning the same thing we're condemning and doing it in a public way, you must be on this team. And not, that's not the way it is. But I do think it's possible to love people. I, I just think it's important for people to be clear with themselves on the following. What's the goal here? Are you communicating about this topic because you want to signal to the rest of the world that you disagree with them? Okay, I get why that's value, valuable. That has its place. Or are you talking about it because you want to use it as a teaching moment to educate people? If you want to educate people, if you use, want to use it as a teaching moment, or if you want to understand something that requires a different mode of communicating than just doing the slam dunk condemnations that you know are going to get you you know, off the hook, you know, for people that might condemn you. One last thing too, is like when you think about like um, um, criminal psychology or criminal investigations, even people who do like the most grotesque and dangerous things, there are great benefits to getting beyond that state of mind that says, I can never understand how people would do that. There are great benefits to saying, hey, I can understand why somebody would do that. I can understand why somebody would kill 20 people. It makes perfect sense. In fact, you can't protect yourself from that and you can't stop other people from doing that, and you can't catch the people that do it until you get to that place where you can say, I understand. That doesn't mean I will do it. That doesn't mean I think it's right. Mm. But yeah, I totally understand. Why? Because I took the time to make a distinction between my capacity to condemn and my capacity to inquire. Mm. Otherwise, you're in denial. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I was having this conversation not too long ago, um, me and Mariah and a couple of our friends, but i I asked the question, when is it appropriate to not show compassion? And uh, my friend, she was like, she's never, it's never appropriate to not show compassion. And I'm like, well, what about this? And what about that? And like throughout the most extreme. And she was like, she's like, well, um, you don't have to, you know, basically approve of someone's actions or enable them. But like to show them compassion is always appropriate. If anything, like the people who are doing the worst things, they need the most compassion out of anyone. And, you know, I really liked that point that she made. Like, yeah. So can I have compassion for Ye? Of course I can have compassion for Ye. Do I, um, you know, agree with the things that he says? No, heck no, I don't agree with the things that he says. It's possible to have both. It's, in fact, another way to look at it is for, specifically with Ye, like a lot of his music is really good. Like I like, like some of the music sounds really good. Doesn't mean I like him as a person or the things that he does. I can separate the art from the artist. Um, and I think that's, you know, the approach that I take with compassion. It's like, I think, I think any, anyone on this planet, uh, deserves a little bit of compassion. Um, but yeah, the compassion doesn't necessarily mean you, you you're agreeing with their actions or, or that you're defending yeah, them. Yeah. Right. I mean, 
I mean, because, you know, let's look at the um, the ultimate, you know, compassion giver, right? It's it's uh, Jesus or Buddha or, or God himself. Um, you know, they, there's not one scenario where the Bible says, hey, you, you aren't forgiven for this. Like if anything, it says, hey, you can do anything you want. And I'm always going to give you compassion. I'm going to give uh, an opportunity for you to um, apologize for your sins and I'll be there for you. And that, I mean, that's what we're all striving to be, right? Is this like ultimate version of um, whatever the best version of ourselves is. And I think that best version of anyone would always give compassion whenever, whenever they can. So sometimes too, compassion can take the form of saying, all right, if that's what you want to do and, and you've made up your mind to pursue that path, then I'm going to let you own all of the challenges and consequences that come along with that. I don't think compassion necessarily means pity. And so for someone like Ye, I've met a lot of people in life who say things, they put their foot in their mouth, they made mistakes, they provoke people and they regret it. For someone like him, he's like the dude that runs in front of a bull waving a red flag, mm-hmm. right? He wants to be in that position. If there is anything this man has proven over the years is that he might be better than anyone we've seen in our lifetime at knowing how to keep his name on people's lips, Mm -hmm. knowing how to constantly being talked about. I've said it before that some people speak to be understood. Some people speak to be heard. He is a man that speaks to be heard. He likes to be talked about. And I think he's right where he wants to be. That doesn't mean I think that what he's doing is right or that he needs to be defended. But I think he is right where he wants to be. He's being talked about in the way that he wants. He's getting the reaction that he wants to get. And so I don't think he needs or wants me to save him. In fact, I've seen him in many different conversations where people have tried to save him. And he's made it very clear that he finds that offensive for people to think that he needs or wants to be saved. So, um, you know, he's he's doing his thing. And um, I'm sure he can handle it because... um, He's handling it just fine, at mm. least in the sense of um, seeming to face the the consequences of it. He clearly is not interested in trying to get people to like him. I think uh, uh, Elon Musk sent him a tweet before shutting down his account. Not a tweet, like a, 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 a private text. Mm. Yeah. And uh, basically like, hey, man, chill, chill, slow down, mm-hmm. you know, try to. You've whatever. gone too far. Yeah. And instead of that, Kanye went <laughs> and posted a screenshot of that mm-hmm. on Twitter. So he wants all the smoke, man. Yeah. He wants all the smoke. So whatever compassion is, there's a dimension to it that says, hey, I'm willing to inquire and I'm willing to make a distinction between who you really are and this thing you might have said that I disagree with. But it's also saying, hey, I recognize that you made your choice and you're exactly where you want to be. And you don't need my pity. Yeah. And, you know, compassion, like you said, doesn't necessarily mean you're feeling sorry for someone. It doesn't mean you're defending them. For me, compassion is simply understanding the humanity um, of of the situation. It literally means to be with someone while they're suffering. Mm. Calm, passion, mm. with suffering. And it doesn't mean that you need to experience their suffering as well. But it also means sometimes you might have to love them from a distance because if they are actively trying to make you suffer, the most loving thing to do in that instance is not to escalate the discontent or violence, but to separate yourself from them altogether. That 
even though it seems counterintuitive, that might be the most loving thing. All right, we're going to interrupt the broadcast for a moment because we just finished recording the podcast and TK had more to say about the yay situation and felt like um, I really enjoyed the conversation we had about that. Oh, heck yeah, Mm -hmm. heck yeah. And I think it was insightful, but you felt like it was incomplete in some way. Yeah, because the question was about compassion and the scope of it. And can we be compassionate towards anybody, including people who do controversial or polemic things? And we talked about Liver King. He's who we started with. And then we ended with Ye, both of whom are celebrities that a lot of people are angry at. A lot of people feel all kinds of emotions towards. And we only talked about compassion as directed towards Liver King, as directed towards Ye. And I think in order for compassion to be what it is, it has to be something that extends to not just one particular individual or entity. And so while I believe that it's possible, to be compassionate towards Liver King and to be compassionate towards Ye, I also think it's possible to be compassionate towards all the people that are angry at them, all of the people that feel betrayed by them, all the people that never want to talk to them again or listen to them again, as well as all of the people that are curious about them, inspired by them, and so on. That's what compassion is. And compassion means I'm willing to be curious about what I'm observing. I'm willing to recognize the possibility of redemption in the person that I'm observing. And that belongs not just to Liver King and Ye, but it belongs to everybody else as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, um, I don't know, I think about uh, my stepfather who like used to beat the crap out of me and how I've talked in the past about how I can now have compassion for him, even to the point of like forgiving him. And when I talk about that, the, the I, I thought, I think there's probably an assumption that I feel compassionate for that little Ryan Nicodemus. And so I think the same thing with like the conversation we were having. I mean, um, of course we have compassion for the people that he is uh, making angry, upset. Um, Yeah, it's uh, compassion. Yeah, all around. And that compassion, because you can have compassion as TK illustrated earlier for yay, for liver king and still hate what they did or hate what they said. Yes, the opposite is also true. If you have compassion for someone who's angry, you can have compassion without agreeing that anger or vitriol or responding foolishly and with outrage is the best route either. I'm not agreeing with them and I can still be compassionate. I can see their suffering. I can love them. One thing that Ye said in the interview where he really went off the rails, he was talking about, I, you're like, wait, you, they're like, you love Nazis? What is, and he goes, I also love the doctor who killed my mother. Hmm. And I think that's what we're talking about here. It'd be really hard for me to say that. Mm-hmm. I love the doctor who killed my mother. Right? Mm-hmm. And yet, I think hmm. you can get to a point Or it doesn't mean you don't want justice for that doctor. But you can still see them in their own suffering. Because I see myself in those who are suffering. One one last thing that I'm compassionate about is the millions of things that are done by millions of people who are not celebrities to hurt people and help people 
that never get talked about on the news while we're busy going inside the courtroom to get into the minds of people that are famous. And I'm very compassionate towards the idea that much of what we debate and discuss is manipulated by what's profitable for us to debate and discuss. And I would love to see a world where the best minds and the brightest minds are analyzing things and arguing about things, not because it took a celebrity to say something, Mm. but analyzing and arguing about things because they're intrinsically valuable discussions to have. You only know what you think you know. Mm. And so if you're outraged by what Ye said, as I was, Mm -hmm. or if you're outraged by the lies that Liver King told, as I was at first, I also realize I only know what I think I know, Mm. but there's so much else under the surface. Yeah. There's so much insecurity and pain and suffering going on in their own lives that I may not be privy to. I may not see that, but I know that it's there. Mm. No one would act the way that they acted without some sort of insecurity and pain and suffering in their own life. Mm. Let's return to our regularly scheduled podcast. I'm going to get us back on track here. Malabama, what time is it? It's time for (laughs) TK's Tweet of the Week. All right, here we go. Here we go. This week's TK's Tweet of the Week comes from Fifi B, the letter B. And the at is at Divine Hostess. All right, from Fifi B. If it is optional and does not feel good, opt out. Mm. If it is optional and does not feel good, opt out. Man, this is an interesting one because whenever you talk about feelings, boy, it's like you, 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 can't, just, <laughs> you can't just do something because it feels good. You can't just opt out of something because it doesn't feel good. Mm. If everybody just listened to their feelings, why the world might be. If it is optional and does not feel good, opt out. Well, well, sometimes you can't just opt out of something just because it feels bad. You need to, uh, you need to recognize that it's not optional then, right? Mm. Feelings, we, we fear them so much. We fear that we're just going to become a bunch of irrational people who only eat impulsively or treat others impulsively, that we've kind of created a culture where people are afraid to honor what feels good to them. And people have almost no context for knowing when it's okay to listen to their feelings. And one of the things I like to say is that in the absence of a logically or morally compelling reason to do otherwise, you should always do what feels good. Mm. Now, if you're going to endure something that feels bad, that's smart. If there's a practical or physical necessity for it, right? A practical necessity is I've got this goal that I'm committed to. And so I need to endure this bad feeling in order to achieve that goal. Physical necessity is, hey, like, it's just not physically possible for me to opt out. All right. It makes sense. Endure the bad feeling. But if it's not pragmatically necessary, it's not moving you towards something you care about. It's not physically necessary. Yeah. You actually have the permission to opt out of things that don't feel good. But I need to prove to other people that I'm tough. No, you only need to be tough for things that are necessary to you. You only need to be tough for things that matter to you. You don't need to be tough to prove to other people that you're not a wimp. And we live at a time where people are forcing themselves to finish what they started in the name of 
it's an intrinsically good thing to finish what you started. Like, no, it mm. actually might be a noble thing to quit if you've outgrown the goal and continuing to do it is unhealthy and self-defeating. Yeah, sometimes quitting is noble. Mm. And that's what I like about this tweet. No, that's great. Makes me think about uh, when I left Facebook. Hey, you know how someone knows you left Facebook? <laughs> yeah, they... Uh, Don't worry, I'll they, tell them. They feel unfriended. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, man. Like, I really felt like at first I had to explain myself. And uh, I, I didn't go as far as to do that. But, but I did take that attitude of like, oh, I'm just going to opt out of it. And I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to call up, you know, friends and family and be like, hey, here's why you're not going to see me on your, on your friends list with Facebook. It's because I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of it. Although I did have people, because um, Facebook does this really, this really, uh, 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 I don't know, crazy thing where if you, if you uh, suspend your account, basically it makes it look like you're still on there. So you can still friend request people. That, that have suspended their account. Um, so like my brother, he was like, dude, why can't, why haven't you accepted my friend request yet? I'm like, dude, that's, I'm, I don't do Facebook, man. Um, so yeah, I mean, sometimes it comes out or yeah, it, it came up, but, but yeah, man, I mean, when you opt out, it, the beautiful thing about that is you don't have to explain yourself as to why you're opting out. And the reason yeah. you opted out is it didn't feel good. It was mm -hmm. a net negative for you. And that's the way that I would posit this is, if it's optional and it's a net negative mm. opt out, yeah. If I were to amend the statement, because the feeling good piece relates to pleasure and pleasure seeking and and chasing. Quite often, the things that feel good end up making us feel bad. Yeah, and so we have to be careful with that as well. Just because something is pleasurable doesn't make it virtuous. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't mean that it is the thing that is going to propel us forward. In fact it might end up getting in the way for us. Yeah. But the other way around though, if it's painful, if it's painful, like it's important to ask, why am I doing this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there might be a great reason. Every morning I get into that ice bath, it's literally painful, right? Your body's yeah. like, hey, we're dying. And that's a great reason. <laughs> and my body afterward, the inflammation has been reduced yeah. and I feel so much more alive. So why am I doing this? I'm enduring the pain because the benefit greatly outweighs that temporary pain. Yeah. Let's move on to an impulse purchase. This one, I see myself from, I don't know, 25 years ago, my own impulses here. This was, I believe, on Instagram. We're going to take a look at the uh, this video. You could call this a sucky ad. You could call it an impulse purchase. You could call it an obsolete object, which by the way, you can send any of those to us. Just podcast at theminimalists.com. This was a Instagram reel posted by Humans of Capitalism. Go ahead, Professor. It's the Gucci store. Look at it. It's a freaking Gucci store. I'm literally about to spaz out. I love Gucci so much. Going in? All right. Mm -hmm. So go ahead and pause that. Mm -hmm. We have been conditioned to want to purchase certain things to show status in our lives, right? 
I'm going to describe this video that we just watched. You heard it if you're just listening to the audio version. I want to describe it. There's a young kid with braces. He seems to be on Rodeo Drive. And he walks past the Gucci store. And this is like walking to Mecca for this kid. Mm. And if I were to sit down with him for an hour, actually sit down with my 14-year-old self, and say, why do you want that? I didn't want Gucci as a 14-year-old. I wanted Tommy Hilfiger or Ralph Lauren or whatever. Right. It's effectively the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Less expensive, but same outcome here. Why do you want that? I would not have had a coherent answer mm. because the honest answer mm. would have been shameful for me. Mm. I want it because it says something about who I am. I am inadequate... Wow. And therefore, I can make myself adequate. I can improve the way I look to others so they will approve of me. Isn't this something how just spelling out the honest answer is sometimes all you need? You know, I mean, even a lot of times when we have epiphanies, it's not because some wisdom from heaven came crashing down. It's because someone mirrored back to us what we really think, believe, or feel, but just hadn't made explicit. And then we can look at it and we can go, oh, yeah, I do believe that. That's silly. Mm. I'm done with that belief. But if you can't separate it from yourself, it feels like it's a part of your identity. But then when someone can reflect it back to you, you go, Wow, not only is that something I want nothing to do with, but by you reflecting it back to me, I can see that it's not who I am, that it's an optional, that it's an option, and I can let it go. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how, um, like, his, uh, I guess he would be a Gen Z, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Like, Gucci is a, it's a, it's a, it's an adjective, mm. which is, um, <laughs> which is crazy. Oh, yeah. I'm Gucci. Oh man, that's Gucci. Yeah, it and means good, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the um, man, it, that generation specifically, I could see where they would get wrapped up in the brand of Gucci. Uh, but yeah, it really is. I don't know. I'm trying not to like be, you know, judgmental of this kid. Um, because if anything, I relate. Just like. You were talking about with the Tommy Hilfiger stuff. But yeah, I mean, if you were to ask him, like, why do you love Gucci so much? And to, you know, get it down to its essence, it probably has something to do with, I want people to accept me. Or maybe even a little worse, I want people to think I'm better than. Yes. Yeah. So we acquire these things. We acquire the Gucci sandals or the Tommy Hilfiger coat or the Birkin bag. We acquire all of these things. Why? Because I feel inadequate. And if I could just get the right thing right now, then I won't feel inadequate. But of course, you get the thing and it becomes another thing that becomes the object of your desire. Mm. And then you start worrying about the thing that you acquired. Oh, no, I bought that really expensive handbag. What if someone steals it? Or you start worrying about the credit card statement that shows up. Oh, no, how am I going to pay this off? You are already 
complete. You are not inadequate. It's the advertisers, the marketers, the corporations who are making you feel inadequate. Why? So they can sell you their goods and services. Mm. They have a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Mm. Let's move on to a sucky advertisement. We call this segment Sucky Ads. You can send your sucky ads to podcast at theminimalists.com. This one came from our friend Beulah. She texted this to me the other day. Alabama folks will see the picture of this on the screen, but maybe you could describe it and also read the caption on this sucky ad. Yeah, so this is a picture of a just pretty basic looking chain. It's very aesthetically pleasing. It's on like a like neck a nice, chain. Yeah, like a necklace. Uh-huh. Um, and it's captioned by saying, the minimalist men's necklace your man needs. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, this it is, looks like a necklace. <laughs> this is using minimalism, using simplicity to bring new things into your life. We will commodify anything. And I say we as like yeah. Western culture, like anything we can make money off of, like we're going to sell it. The minimalist chain that your man needs, not wants, not desires, not will look nice in, but he needs this, mm. which the implications of which are what? He is incomplete without this chain. How absurd is that? Because if anything, I put on that chain, I'm going to look in the mirror and be like, what am I doing? Because it doesn't feel like me. It doesn't mean I think there's anything wrong with wearing jewelry. I mean, some of my favorite punk rock icons were studded out with all kinds of rings <laughs> and, and, and jewelry. Oh, yeah. And yet, then we try to affect what they're doing. Last week, we talked about prescriptions. I could take the prescription of Mick Jagger and wear the clothes and the jewelry that Mick Jagger wore. I'm not going to be Mick Jagger. Mm. I can take Jimi Hendrix's guitar and never play like Jimi Hendrix, right? Get all the sheet music too. Yeah. Ah, I, can, perfectly. Mm-hmm. I can get David Foster Wallace's notebook and never write a novel like Infinite Jest. I Yum. can get the pen that Stephen King used to pen the novel Carrie and never write anything as suspenseful as that book. Yeah. We confuse the accoutrements with the success with the person. I am not those things. Those things are fine. They can be artwork. But if I feel like I need to go shop at King Baby in order to be a king in my own life, man, I'm misguided. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's why you got to look at the ingredients and not the labels. Minimalism is no exception. I mean, how many things do you see in a grocery store now where it's like keto friendly, low carb, vegetarian friendly, And then you look at the labels and it's got all kinds of things in there. It's like, this is not consistent with the expectation that was set at all. You know, what people are selling is uh, very different than than the substance inside the package. Most of those keto-friendly foods will immediately take you out of ketosis. Mm. As a person who is in ketosis probably 23 and a half hours a day, I'm not prescribing them. I'm saying you should. I just am out of necessity because of my autoimmune disease. 
I can tell you that any of those foods would almost certainly kick me out of ketosis. The mm. irony is we eat those things in order to be in ketosis, <laughs> but it gives us the opposite. Now, isn't that a metaphor for what the jewelry does as well? Imagine me buying 15 pieces of jewelry so I could be more minimalist. <laughs> Minimalism is not about acquiring anything to make yourself simpler. It's about letting go of the stuff that is in the way. And if I acquired things that get in the way, I'm not becoming more minimalist. I'm simply becoming more cluttered. Yeah. We got a, a Photo Friday home tour. You all received this photo. If you subscribe to the video version of the private podcast, we're going to walk over to Ryan's palatial estate. <laughs> this photo you see here above my left shoulder, if you're watching the video version, I'm calling this Tower of Scrabble. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> I was thinking uh, something to do with a jungle. <laughs> Tower of Scrabble. <laughs> so this bookshelf is a bookshelf. I had two bookshelves. This, yeah. this is called the story bookshelf. And this one used to be mine. But of course, as a good minimalist, anytime I want to get rid of something, I force it onto Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> These bookshelves were absolutely beautiful in my mm. old apartment. Mm-hmm. When I lived here in Los Angeles, right down the street from the studio, they fit perfectly in this space that I had. I had two of them and it looked great. We moved to the new home. I didn't have space for it. And at first I tried, how can we cram this into our new space? And it didn't work. It felt what? It felt crammed. It felt cluttered. It was in the way. Mm. And so I was getting ready to sell them. I'm like, hey, Ryan, do you want one of these? I'm not going to sell it to you. Yeah, just give mm -hmm. it to you if you want it. And he said, yes. I sold the other one almost immediately and because these things are beautiful. And you ended up getting value from it. It seems like it helped you organize your books and your board games, hence Tower <laughs> of Scrabble. But also the reason it looks so good there is you have, have, uh, you've surrounded it by these plants as well, which is something I would have never even thought about. Yeah, man. I mean, it's funny. Um... Yeah, my, uh, Mariah and I's apartment is not, you know, very minimalist looking. In fact, you know, if you saw this picture and you didn't know it was my place, there's no way you would look at that picture and be like, oh, that guy must be a minimalist. <laughs> um, but you know, but that's, you know, that's why I didn't mind like sharing this is because I don't want people to think in order to be a minimalist, it has to look a certain way. You have to have a certain aesthetic. Mm. Uh, Mariah and I, find value in having plants. Um, that little light right there, that's a, it's a, uh, it's got a, I don't know, some kind of grow bulb in it or whatever. And, uh, it's amazing how that one little light bulb, it really does supply all those plants with like the, the light that they need. We, um, we, we used to have much more sunlight in our old place. So we didn't need, a uh, we didn't need that lamp. When we moved to this place, all of our stuff started dying. And so I was like, oh, maybe we can get like a light bulb to, you know, simulate sunlight. And we did. And you can kind of see in the back there, um, that's that's our patio. And there's a little hammock back there. And we go out there and read. Mariah loves to go out there every single morning. She like gets her uh, sunlight bath in. Um, but yeah, this is uh, this is our little jungle, our little Tower of Scrabble jungle. It's both <laughs> functional and beautiful. And you've also, I believe, is that the cat bed underneath that little table there? It is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. so the cat hides out under there. I've known Ryan for 30 years. I've seen his cat once. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, It stays hidden, uh, Max. And when I look at, at this, 
I think about something you brought up recently, Ryan. You're like, hey, I feel like my home isn't as photogenic. And what I said to you was like, yes, that's exactly what people want to see. Mm. I don't think it's it doesn't think it, I don't think mm. it lacks any sort of photogenic quality here. Mm-hmm. It's just you see it and you compare it to some other space you see in like architectural digest or something. It's like, oh, I could never be in there. But also mm. understanding that most of the things you see in magazines are staged. Or even when you come to my house and it's not staged, mm-hmm. it's obsessed about in a way that you aren't willing to obsess. And it's totally okay because you can still have a beautiful functional space without having that same level of detail obsession. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's my home tour. You'll never be seeing any other pictures of my home. I'm just kidding. Not true. We're going to see Mallory sometimes cat sits. I have her take all kinds of pictures. You should see the pictures she's sent me. I have so many pictures of your cat, dude. Hey, this is also a great example of something you guys point out, but it, it's the insight shines uniquely here is uh, the idea that minimalism isn't just about the number of things. There's functionality and aesthetic. And those two things can be off even if you only have one thing. I mean, imagine a home where the only thing you have is a bed. Mm. Are you a minimalist? Most people would say yes. But suppose that for no apparent reason, the bed is against the wall, standing up, and it's upside down. And the only way you go to sleep is you get in the bed and you contort your body and you try to sleep on your head. Well, that seems to be complicated and weird and off and misaligned in all sorts of ways. And so in order to have a truly minimalist lifestyle, you need the right aesthetic, the right functionality, and not just the right right number of things. And what we see here is all three coming together in a cool way. Yeah. It's also about what you value, right? I had Beulah over at our home last weekend and... I value function over form. She values form over function. Mm. And it's not to say that one is better or worse, yeah. but it's better for me. I value both and she values both. But for me, form has to follow function. For her, function tends to follow form. I'll give you an example. In her house, she doesn't have end tables by her bed. Mm. On a previous home tour, you saw the end table. I have next to nothing in our bedroom. I have a bed and I have two end tables though because that function is really important to me and it's important to Bex. And so we have some nice forms. They look good, but to Beulah, it would look better if you just removed those end tables altogether. Mm. And so what do you value? I value function and I still want it to be beautiful, but only if it functions first. For her, she would rather go without. Mm if it didn't adhere to the form that she values. Yeah. Wow. And you know, going back to the, if all someone owned was a bed, Yeah. are they minimalist? I mean, they could have only a bed and be or not be yep. a minimalist. Yeah. And, and I just want to make that distinction because, uh, well, the podcast that we did the other day, it wasn't ours, but um, we were getting interviewed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the topic came up about like, well, people who are impoverished, I guess they're just automatically minimalists, huh? And uh, that's just not the case. I mean, it's if you have a bed and it's intentional that you have only a bed and you go out of your way to 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 keep, you know, whatever, whatever it is like to keep those boundaries up, then, yeah, like, great, you're a minimalist. But, you know, if you get rid of everything and, and only keep a bed, um, you're not necessarily a minimalist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. banks know this. That's why they give those high interest credit cards to the impoverished mm. because they know that they're not minimalists. 
That's why they become debt slaves. It's an unfortunate thing. Mm. Alabama, I know we had one other Patreon question. We typically do a live stream every Tuesday at 10 a.m. So we gathered this. We're late on this because it was, I believe, a Christmas gift question. But let's apply it more broadly Mm. to gifts in general because we're faced with this all year, right? What's right around the corner now? Valentine's Day. And after Mm -hmm. that, Ryan always gets me something for Flag Day. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. This was a question from Meredith. And she said, every year I beg my family not to give me any gifts. And every year they refuse to respect my wishes. This year, my husband and I moved to a new house, and I've tried to explain to them that we're trying to downsize. It hurts my feelings that they refuse to listen to me and respect my wishes. This sounds like such a first world problem, I know, but I don't want to dread celebrations because of things like this. Any suggestions? What if I went to your living room and just dumped a big pile of trash in there? And I was like, here you go. Merry Christmas. Oh. Like, what would, I mean, it's easy to look at that and say, well, if it was trash, I would you know, I'd get it out of my house as soon as possible. But, but we're talking about trash. But we are talking about trash. It looks a little bit different. Or if I, you know, took um, some end tables and threw them in your front lawn, here you go. Here's some end tables for you. I mean, are you just going to leave them there be- because I gave them to you? Like, no, it's it's something that um, doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't bring you joy. You didn't ask for it. You're going to get rid of it. Um, it is a little bit more difficult when someone gives you something, but you know, if someone is disrespecting your boundaries, if they are going out of their way to not support you, um, it, I guess you don't have to go out of your way to support the decisions that they're making for you. You are allowed to say no. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to say no. No is a complete sentence on its own. If someone wants to give you a gift and you don't want that gift, you don't have to be mean about it. You can show compassion and still say, no, thank you. No, I'm not going to accept that. No, I'm not going to bring it into my life. Especially if you've already communicated the fact that I don't want any excess stuff. This isn't a judgment onto you. I don't have to explain myself. I'm simply going to say, no, no, I don't want that gift. No, I don't want that necktie. No, I don't want those cufflinks. No, I don't want that purse. No, I don't want that gift card. No, I don't want the things you want to heap onto me. And it's not a judgment of you. Mm -mm. It is simply understanding what adds value to my life. You're understanding that you have enough. Now, I'll say one other thing. You might be telling them you don't want it, but they may may not be hearing you. And so is there some other way that you can get them to hear you without being rude, without being mean, without being unkind? Is there a way to help them understand that what they're doing is not adding value to your life at all? Mm. Yeah. People don't respond to the boundaries you promise, but to the boundaries that you deliver. And the way you deliver on a boundary isn't by talking about it so that people can hear it but by making your boundary felt. And as, as unfair and harsh as it seems, when we express dissatisfaction, that's just not as moving as when we flat out refuse to accept something. And you could do that in a couple of ways. You can say no and refuse to accept it. Or you can say, hey, look, if you give that to me, I've already told you how I feel. I'm gonna sell it or I'm gonna give it away. If you think you're gonna be angry about that, You should factor that into your decision now. And then you've got to make good on it. You've either got to deliver a hard no 
or you've got to let them know what you're going to do with it and then do that thing with it. Because as Ryan said, once they give it to you, it's yours and you get to do with it whatever you please. And that means give it away, sell it, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. My, my grandma, my Oma gave me that paperweight. She's like, here you go. Here's a, you're, you're a, you're an author. Here's a paperweight. Cause I must just have papers everywhere. <laughs> R- Ryan, I got you a metaphor. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, but I very kindly said, um, wow, thanks for thinking of me. That really means a lot. This is a beautiful paperweight. You know what? I don't, really have a spot for this. But if if you would like, I I can find it a really good home if you want. And she was like, oh, could you do that? I'm like, yeah, I'd be happy to find it a good home. Oh. So I found it a good home. Mm. Now, things that you have in your house right now that people gave you that you don't want, the one thing that I would recommend, uh, or let me just say what I would do if I was in your situation, I would call up the person who gave me that thing. And I'd say, hey, you know what? You gave me this thing, however many years, weeks, whatever, months ago. Um, It's a really beautiful thing. I don't have room for it anymore. So I was thinking about donating it or I was thinking about selling it. But I wanted to call you first to see if you wanted to do something else with it. And if not, then I will find it a better home. But I wanted to to give the courtesy of of calling you uh, to see... um, you know, what you would think would be the most appropriate way for me to get rid of this. I love that. I'm not saying no to you. I'm saying no to this thing because I simply don't have the space for it. Mm. And that's it. How can you argue with that? Yeah. Yes, you do have the space. Yeah. No, I simply don't have the space for it. Mm. Would you be willing to withhold the gift giving? This birthday, this Valentine's Day, this sweetest day, this flag day. <laughs> we should start a shop called unwantedgifts.com. All the people that are receiving these unwanted gifts, they send them to us and we just sell them online for them and we can just donate the money to charity. Oh, unwantedgifts.com. Yeah. I don't own the domain. <laughs> so, well, someone's going to go buy it now. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we can send them the gifts. Yeah. Ryan, you're going to really enjoy this added value this week. I rarely like country albums, Mm. but this one last year, it was on my list of top 10 or top 12 albums, my year-end list I do every year, which you can find, by the way, over at theminimalists.com slash sound all the way back to 2011. So the first year of our blog, I've been doing my favorite albums of the year. That's awesome. And this is one of the albums. It's the only country album I think that's ever made the list. Unless you consider Rustin Kelly. He was one of my favorite albums of the last decade. And I really enjoyed it. Although that was borderline country. This one, I don't know if he would consider it country. And maybe it's Americana. Maybe there's some sort of folk or Western in it. His name is Zach Bryan. And the album, love the album title. American Heartbreak. And this song is called Happy instead. All right, that's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Well, I've been pacing this room for 40 hours. 
crawling up the walls and trying not to call. And I saw you walking in a supermarket aisle. I didn't say a word 'cause you had the biggest smile. And I've been thinking of you in the morning times. You woke me up so soft I forgot the world ain't kind. I pull you in and you kiss me through a grin. And you say you miss me when you were busy sleeping. But what if I said happy instead is the way that I reckon it should be? And if you call, you'd say that you're okay. Wishing I was there, 'cause you're happy instead. Happy instead. And I've been dreaming of the life we woulda had. Happy at times, but mostly just mad. Maybe it worked out, maybe it'd been fine. But every day your smile ain't showing seems a waste of time. So what if I said happy instead is the way that I reckon it should be? And if you call, you'd say that you're okay, and I'd be wishing I was dead 'cause you're happy. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Yeah.